This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Please remain standing for this morning's scripture reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Love makes a house a home. My wonderful mom growing up had these plaques with cliches like that posted all around our house. Um, Things like, home is where the heart is. And and I think you could all think of well-worn phrases uh, that are about home and that, that talk about this concept that we all know so well. But the idea of home resonates somewhere deep within our hearts. Author and civil rights activist Maya Angelou says, the ache for home lives in all of us. The safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. Now, as I was preparing for this sermon uh, at one, one of the days this week, I went for a run. And you have to know this about me. I'm not a runner, okay? And so running to me is not enjoyable. Uh, I get about two miles in and I turn into a hypochondriac because I, I feel this pain right here. I'm thinking, my spleen's rupturing. I need to turn around, get home. Like, what's going on? And, and so I don't typically enjoy running, but I do it for, for the exercise. And so um, I'm on this run. I'm contemplating this sermon and I'm feeling absolutely depleted, kind of thinking, is this what Paul was talking about when he said that we will uh, share in the sufferings of Christ? Was this activity what he meant by that? And, and I'm running and I'm thinking, okay, I can see my home in the distance. And, and this visceral response welled up in me because I knew that home was a place of refreshment, a place of, of security, a place where I could rest my weary legs and quench my thirst. And, and this is the, the, the yearning that we have for home is set in the human heart. And it's only the Christian gospel that has a response to it. Now, when I was uh, studying to be uh, an English teacher in Orange County, I had to take this written exam. And the first question they asked us was, describe a place that evokes nostalgia for you. So as I thought about it, um, this place that I grew up near called Lake Shemung came to mind. Now, Lake Shemung was this community that was set on a lake in central Michigan, and and there was these giant pine trees that kind of went up to the shore, and and to some extent, some some topography. There was rolling hills, and and it was beautiful, and there was putt-putt golf and a candy store, and everybody drove around golf carts, and uh, it was where my grandma and grandpa lived. And and now looking back, I realize it was a retirement home, um, but, but I loved it. 
When, when I got to go there, it was a place where all was well in the world. It was home. And, and I think that as I speak, you can all recollect and think of places, see images uh, that evoke this feeling of home to you. Now, in this text that we're about to look at, Jesus addresses this question. He addresses this concept of home by first redefining what home is, and then second, telling us how we can get there. And so those are my two points. Those are the two questions I want to ask. The first one is, where is home? And the second one is, how do we get there? Where is home, and how do we get there? So if you have a Bible, or if you have your worship folder in front of you, open up, please, to John 14, because we're going to be working through this passage together. Where is home? Verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, to get some context here, these are the last moments that Jesus has with his disciples. And, and these are uh, the moments that he has these, these few words before his imminent death. And Jesus has already told them three things. He said that he's leaving them because somebody's going to betray him, one of the disciples, and that Peter is going to deny him. So in light of these three things, the disciples are rightly troubled in their hearts. But, but how much more is Jesus troubled in his heart? Even in, in John 12, 27, it says, Jesus himself says, now is my soul troubled. In John 13, 21, it says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He's living under this, this crushing burden of looking into the face of death. He, we can't miss this, that, that on the night when Jesus is so perturbed in his soul, that he literally sweats blood. He's concerned about the state of his disciples' hearts. This is amazing to me. He cares that they not be troubled, even though he is about to go to the cross where he's gonna drink the wrath of God on behalf of these disciples. He's sitting there thinking, I want for them to not be troubled in heart. The the beautiful compassion here, the, the tender consideration of Jesus to be concerned with where his disciples' hearts are. And the disciples are, are somewhat selfishly troubled, all right? They're, they're concerned, what's gonna happen to me when Jesus is gone? What's gonna happen to us when he's no longer here anymore? And, and all they really know is that one of them's gonna betray him and that Peter will deny him. And, and I want to zoom in and, and bring this home to us that if we're honest, Peter's not alone. There's a tendency in all of us, like the hymn says, where our hearts are prone to wander. We deny the one that we say that we love on a regular basis. And this is why this is so significant. It's into our doubts and into our denials that Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, what cure does he give for the troubled heart? Let's look again at verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, this could also be read, you believe in God, believe also in me. 
Jesus is saying, you have a, a general belief in God, and that's a good thing, but it's not enough. In God we trust is good, it's just insufficient. There's more that's necessary here. We need a God who's with us. We need a God who's sympathetic towards us. We need a God who, who bears our own troubles in his very heart. And I, as I was thinking about this, um, I remembered my wife, Alana, she's not here this morning. She's um, with her family on a vacation. And, and one of the things that I found out early in my relationship with Alana was she's very afraid of flying. Okay, and, and it's gotten significantly better uh, as we've gone along. But, but the first time that I flew with her, um, it was jarring because the woman that I brought to the airport was not the woman that was sitting next to me in the airplane. I was like, what? Somewhere between the security line and boarding our airplane, there was just this total change of person. She slipped into this catatonic state of fear where there was no reasoning, no talking, really no talking to her at all. Um, and all she wanted was to like death grip my arm and bury her head into my chest. And in that moment, there's nothing that I could say that's gonna ease her troubled heart. Only the presence of a person could do that for her. And so similarly, Jesus is saying, it's not enough to believe in an abstract God. You need Emmanuel. You need God with us. You need Jesus, the one who comes and brings the very presence of God to his people. And only when we realize that Jesus is saying that the, the remedy to our troubled hearts is himself, only when we realize that will we be able to see the troubles in our hearts be eased. But even more than belief in Jesus, even more than that, in the midst of tumultuous hearts, Jesus knows that we need the hope of home. He knows that we need a place of serene security to calm our turmoiled souls. And so look with me at verse two. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus says, in light of your doubts and denials and the, the coming devastation of me dying and leaving, in light of all that's about to occur, remember your home. He says, it's terrifying that I'm leaving you, but it's so that I can take you to a place where there are no troubled hearts because there's no betrayal, there's no goodbyes, there's no loss, there's no death. And so Jesus calls his disciples upward to imagine what it is gonna be like to be in the Father's house. I love how Jesus describes the house as capacious and roomy and it's just this deluxe mansion with all these rooms. And I think the reason there's many rooms in the house of God is because the heart of God is spacious and generous and full towards sinners like you and I. And Jesus wants us to hear that if there's space for deniers like Peter and doubters like Thomas, then there's room enough for you and me. 
Now, I want you to hear, Jesus says that the very reason he's leaving is to go and prepare a place, right? And, and what he's not saying is that he's going to do some sort of home renovation project. Like, I don't think Jesus is gonna come back at the end of the ages and yell, move that bus, and then we're gonna see the Father's house all like macked out because Jesus has been working on it, <laughs> right? It's not like a fixer-upper or anything like that. In fact, Jesus' preparation is his death and resurrection. That's the very preparation he's doing. And I love this, that, that not only um, is Jesus' death the preparation, it, it will, like a home renovation, involve wood and and nails and a hammer, but it's gonna be the death on the cross that's gonna prepare the place for us. And he doesn't say that he's going to prepare a place just general and and unspecific. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I, I really believe that this is one of those passages that tells us that when Christ is hanging on the cross, he has particular people in mind. His love is specific. It is general for his church, but it's specific for us as his people. Now, Robert Frost has this quote. He says, home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. And I think it's only Jesus' dying and rising that makes that quote true. It's only because of what Jesus has done that the Father not only takes us in, but delights to swing the doors open for us to come in. Um, Alana, my wife and I, we're house hunting kind of as we speak to some extent. We've been in this whole season of it. And and we get these emails on a regular basis where um, it'll basically tell us in our geographical parameters the houses that are uh, um, for sale and how much they cost and, and things like that. And so... As we, we'll see one pop up, I'll be like, oh, wow, this one looks great, and it's cheap, and it's in the middle of a roundabout? Like, what? Why would anybody want to live there? Or, oh, it's underneath the I-4 construction's new overpass, and this terrible location. I mean, I guess it would have good cooling bills in the summer, but it's just not a good location. And, and so just as real estate has the term location, 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 so location is important here as well. And the first question that I asked you was, where is home? And Jesus says, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. My initial question, where is home, finds its answer in that home is with Jesus in the Father's house. That deep yearning, that longing that we all know for a place called home finds its fruition in being with Jesus in the Father's house. The second question I said I would address is, how do we get there? How do we get there? When I was in college, my friend Josh and I, we were coming from Panama City Beach uh, where we were with, a, with Campus Crusade on a summer or on a beach project. And, and we had this brilliant idea that if we left at nine o'clock at night and drove through the night, we could get home in time to, to kind of wake up in our, own, in our own houses. And so as we're driving, this, mind you, this is before kind of smartphones and, but after GPS, okay? So this was back, if you remember, when you had to literally take your GPS and plug it into the computer to like update the maps on it and stuff. 
Um, and I hadn't done that, okay? So, so we're driving kind of through the, the backwoods of Florida to try to get our way home. And about two hours into our drive, we realize we are tragically lost, okay? And, and so we, we decide, you know what? The next gas station we see, we're gonna stop, do what we're never supposed to do, but ask for directions. And, and we, we pull up, we see this gas station off on the right. And it is the quintessential horror movie gas station, okay? We're in the middle of nowhere. It's pitch black. And the only thing you can see is kind of the fog strolling across the parking lot. And I'm like, am I goosebumps right now? Like, what is going on? And so we decide, okay, we're a little tentative. We're apprehensive about walking in. But, but there was a police officer parked in the lot. So we, okay, we're, we're safer then. So we walk in, and as we walk in, we literally pass the cop on his way out. He gets in his car and leaves. And so we're sitting there. We're, we're inside the gas station at this point. We think, a little creepy, but we'll, we'll talk to this guy. And, and so we start asking uh, for directions. And I said we were coming from a, a Campus Crusade project. And if you know anything about those, you basically spend a week telling people about Jesus. So we thought, oh, you know what? We're going to tell this guy about Jesus. Shortly into that conversation, he insinuated that he'd killed somebody before. Uh, and we were not really positive he was beyond doing that again. And so more than ever at this point, all we want to know is how do we get out of here and how do we get home? How do we get home? And this is what the disciples are asking when they come to Jesus. Look at verse four with me. Jesus says, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Poor Thomas, whenever he shows up, he looks like a complete doofus. And, and this just happens to him all the time. But, but in reality, he's a, a lot like you and me. And so there's a sense in which we can relate to him. I, I think that's because Thomas is the ultimate pragmatist. Right? He just wants to know how things work and how they're gonna, what the practical steps are. Later in John's gospel, there's a point when he says, unless I touch his scars and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas wants things that are tangible, that he can see and touch that is real to him. And right here, he basically is saying, yeah, Jesus, you're going to the Father, but what does that even mean? What, that's, that's meaningless to me. How do we even get there? What are the steps? How do we gauge success? What are the benchmarks? What are the outcomes? What are the stats? And really, this is kind of how we are too. We're very pragmatic in, in, in the way that we engage with God and the way we engage with Jesus. Recently, I was um, buying something on Craigslist and I, I learned pretty quickly that the guy on the other line that I was purchasing something from um, was from an older generation, we'll say that. And so as I'm talking to him, I, I'm asking him, okay, yeah, will you just tell me what your address is and, and I can find out how to get to your place. And, and he didn't think that that was enough. So he, he wanted to give me turn by turn detailed instructions how to get from where I am to where he is giving me things like, you'll see a pond on the right and that's where you'll turn and look for the red house on the left and it's about a quarter mile past that and the whole time I'm thinking to myself, just give me the address. There's something called Google Maps. I don't need your detailed instructions. And I, I think that this is similar to what Thomas is saying. 
It's like, Jesus, give me the address. I'll punch it into my iPhone. Tell me where home is, and I'll make it there myself. But rather than rebuking him, Jesus' response is patient but astonishing. Look at verse six with me. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is basically saying, Thomas, you don't get it. Getting home is not about you, it's about me. It's not about the steps that you take, but the steps that I'm about to take. It's not about measuring your success, but trusting in my success for you. And, and many people, I think, when we read this verse, um, today, still, many people have a problem with that last section, right? Where he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. It just feels constrictive and, and narrow-minded and, and exclusive. And perhaps Jesus is even committing the, the cardinal sin of our culture, which is intolerance, and I want to see this is incredibly exclusive. Jesus is saying here that, the, that there's no spiritual truth, there's no spiritual life outside of him. But we also have to see the inclusivity of Jesus' exclusivity. All right? And this is what I mean by that. Everyone agrees that there's a giant gulf between here and home. Everybody agrees that there's a giant gulf between where we are now and where we want to be. We just all disagree on how we get across that gulf, how we bridge that gap. And so whether it's um, the, the five pillars of Islam or the, the karma cycles of Buddhism and Hinduism or, or whether it's climbing the, the steps to success in the marketplace, these are all painfully exclusive ways of bridging that gap. Only the best, only the brightest, the most self-controlled, the most devout, the good-natured people, those are the only ones that achieve this kind of top status. Only those that can make the cut can make it home. But gospel Christianity is radically different. Rather than earning our way upwards to God, he mercifully descends down to us. And, and this is what's so different about what Jesus' exclusivity says. And, and it's really not only until we see Jesus with his open arms on the cross, bleeding out so that he can bring the poor and the broken and the sinners and the undisciplined people to his Father. Only until we see those open arms can we see that Jesus' claim is wonderfully inclusive while it is exclusive. Jesus is constantly saying, if you just read the gospel, things like, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Whoever thirsts, come to me and drink. Anyone that comes to me, I will never cast out. You see these broad, inclusive words that Jesus uses constantly, but there's only one way, and it's through him. You might still be asking, yeah, okay, but why? Why does it have to be this way? Why is it that there's only one way home and that's through Jesus? 
I want you to see that Jesus is the way because he is the truth and the life. Only because Jesus is the truth of God can he be the way to God. You see, Jesus is, he's the truth because he is God's generous self-disclosure. We want to know what God's like, we look at Jesus. Remember before I said we don't have this abstract general concept of who God is. We have a person who came down to be among us, and that's how we know who God is. He is the self-expression of God. Jesus is the only one who's come from the Father's house, and so therefore he's the only one that can speak rightly about it and lead us back to it. So only because Jesus is the truth of God can he be the way to God, but also only because Jesus is the life of God that he can be the way to God. Jesus is himself self-existent. He's uncaused life. John uh, chapter one, four says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Acts 3.15 says that Jesus is the author of life. This is, this is amazing that Jesus is such potent vitality that he speaks and dead men like Lazarus come out of their grave. Jesus is the way because in him is both revelation and resuscitation. Jesus is the only way because in him is truth and life. Now I want you to hear this. Jesus isn't simply making a way. He's not like some guide machete hacking his way through the Amazon jungle. That's, that's not what he's saying here that you just need to track in behind him and, and do what he does and then you'll be good, you'll make your way home. Jesus says he himself is the way. More like a river that is both the path and the propulsion from, from the source all the way down into the ocean of the Father's love. This is the sense in which Jesus is the way to the Father. Now as we close, I want you to, I want you to hear this. Jesus walked the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows, so that he could become, so that he could prepare the way to God. Jesus was falsely accused. He had lies spewn out about him so that he could reveal the truth of God to us. Jesus was murdered and put to death and then raised again so that he could be the life of God for us. We have a way home, and it's through the dying and rising Savior, Jesus Christ. In the words of the 17th century poet-priest, George Herbert, come my way, my truth, my life, such a way as gives us breath, such a truth as ends all strife, such a life as killeth death. Please pray with me. Father, it is your antecedent love for sinners like us, for those who are wayward and, and troubled in heart. It is your mercy towards people like us that sent Jesus to prepare a way back to yourself. And Jesus, we praise you for being the way, the truth, and the life. And I pray that all of us in here would find our, our hope 
and find our peace in you. And Holy Spirit, you are the comforter, the, the one, the helper who is sent by Jesus to give us the peace that surpasses all understanding. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.